Am I living the life that I want to live? Match your hardest work to your brain's energy level. There are actually new opportunities to explore within the organisation that you work in right now. Welcome to the second renaissance where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Sulman-Nilsson, global futurist, impact champion and father, and your host for The Second Renaissance. Today, I sit down for a deep and meaningful conversation with Dr. Amantha Imba. Amantha is an organizational psychologist and the founder of behavioral science consultancy Inventium. She's a Thinkers 50 Innovation Award winner and LinkedIn changemaker, and Amantha's thoughts have appeared in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Fast Company. And she's the author of two best-selling books, The Creativity Formula and The Innovation Formula. We canvass topics like the impact of the pandemic on creativity and the future of work, how climate change is a creativity catalyst, the vulnerability value of a failure resume, and how we can increase the productivity and innovation output in our companies. This conversation really made me pause, take stock and rethink how I schedule my time and think more creatively about creativity and productivity. And I hazard a guess and think it will do the same for you. Amantha, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Now, we both missed the first renaissance, right? But um, the ideas of creativity, innovation, flourishing of, of human ideas and productivity is very much in, in, in your wheelhouse. Uh, you're super successful at what you do, and sometimes we, we cross paths in the sort of innovation space. I think the last time we caught up uh, in person was during the launch of an AMP white paper on the future of retail back in 2013, <laughs> if, if my memory serves me right, or I might not have made a memorable impression. Uh, no, no, no. I'm just thinking, God, that feels like a lifetime ago. But then again, anything that happened like before 2020 feels like a lifetime ago, let's face it. So, I mean, that is so true. And, and I think, you know, everyone goes, oh, you know, the, the pandemic has accelerated, you know, digital transformation, you know, 10 years worth of digital acceleration has been compressed into a, a single year and, and all of that, right? What are, you, what are you seeing from a sort of human productivity perspective as we think about this huge future work experiment that we've all been thrown into? What, what are you seeing in terms of, human output in an age of artificial intelligence and, and all the rest? Look, in terms of the work that we're doing with clients at Inventium, we are seeing, you know, and I'm just thinking like of some recent data I was analysing last week for a, a global big multinational FMCG company. We found that staff were working an average of 10 hours a day which is a really long, exhausting day, I would say. And that's why we were brought in because staff are feeling exhausted and burnt out and there's so many competing priorities and back-to-back -back Zoom meetings all day and then they get their actual work done at night. And then when we asked these people, so how many hours of focused, productive, uninterrupted work do you think you do per day? About 
half of the sample were saying less than two hours a day. And if we look at staff that were saying less than three hours a day, that was almost everyone. And you just go, what on earth can be done when we're actually working in inverted commas for 10 hours a day, but say 20% of that time is the only productive time. I mean, that is a crazy world that we're in. Although we'd be on par with Google's 20% time, right? <laughs> right. If you flip that, yeah. <laughs> yes. Although from my friends who work for Google, they've always sort of said, yeah, 20% time, you know, it's really 120% time. time. Yes. Yeah, right. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you, you come from this, you know, there was this wonderful background um, of, um, you know, PhD, your Dr. Amantha Imbra, I should say, to be to be academically uh, correct. Uh, you've got a, you know, phenomenal and, and very impressive CV, um, you know, spanning, and you work with the likes of, of Google and all, all the the big companies that are really sort of, you know, ha- helping enable this future of work uh, experiment. And I've followed your your work for for a number of years, and at the same time. I read this really humble blog post that you put up on LinkedIn a, a few weeks ago, which was your failure resume, um, which um, I'd love you to throw a little bit of light on. And where did the idea come from? And, you know, how is it playing into uh, how, how you look at work and how you look at, you know, humans being happy at work? Yeah, it's the failure resume. So the concept behind a failure resume is that on a normal resume, you talk about your successes and you often embellish, maybe tell the odd little, you know, lie or stretch of the truth. And, you know, it's all about everything that you've achieved. But the failure resume is the opposite, where you talk about what are the biggest failures in your career and also outside of your career, potentially as well. But also as well as talking about the failures, you talk about what you've learned from those failures, because failures are kind of useless unless you learn something from them. So that's the concept of a failure resume. Where I first got the idea, look, I want to say Adam Grant, uh, who I imagine a lot of listeners are probably familiar with, organisational psychologist and professor at Wharton and also the host of the Work Life podcast. Uh, and I've known Adam for quite a few years. He's He's been on my podcast, How I Work, a couple of times and I'm pretty sure it was from him originally. And I thought, oh, that's that's such an interesting idea. And back in early 2020, I was I was doing this project, I called it my year of better, where the idea was I wanted to trial out different strategies and research findings that I'd come across to see how I could make my life better. And that, ex- that experiment sort of lasted for a few months and then it kind of died off. But one of the experiments was writing a failure resume, but also publishing the failure resume and making it public because that's where it gets really scary and high stakes. So early 2020, I wrote my first failure resume and I broadcast it to everyone connected on me in the social media world, which I think was, I don't know, about 20,000 or something, and also all of Inventium's e-newsletter subscribers, another 20,000, basically here are my biggest failures. And that was really interesting and it was very humbling. And I think the the act of doing that, well, I know that it inspired a lot of other people to reflect on their failures and publish their own failure resumes. The thinking behind it in terms of the research is that 
we know uh, we know that when we try to suppress negative emotions, we actually feel them more intensely, which is kind of counterintuitive because you you sort of hope that if you sweep things under the carpet, you can just ignore them and move on with your life. But the opposite happens. Whereas when we talk about the things that are troubling us, when we talk about the negative emotions and things that we're feeling and experiencing, it actually softens them and lessens that experience. And that's the theory behind why a failure resume is a really effective way of dealing with uncomfortable feelings in your life. Ironically, through putting it out there and making it very public, it actually uh, de-intensifies those feelings. Yeah. So I'll pause there. I'm not sure if we want to dig in any further, but that's the concept and why a failure resume can be quite effective. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, so, so I'm a member of an organization called the Entrepreneurs Organization and uh, part of, of EO Forum, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, um, is that we share very vulnerably, you know, very Brené Brown style. Um, and it's across areas like business, uh, our, you know, biggest challenges. And it, and it has to be, our, you know, the deepest 5% and, our, you know, our best 5%. So it is, it is really vulnerable and it creates a, a beautiful sharing uh, experience for, for everybody involved. It's, it is in a confidential setting. So the fact that you've gone public with, with your failures, I think, is, is taking things to the next level. Uh, we are in a confidential forum, you know, eight to 10 people, and we share across, you know, personal, business, uh, community, uh, et cetera, whatever sort of, you know, most real for us, personal and and everything comes up from you know we've had we've had members who've you know been on on you know on, on the verge of suicide for example and you know people are going through relationship breakups or, or, or you know kids who, who who are into drugs for example and you know it it, it spans the spectrum of, of human experience but i think by voicing it it becomes profoundly um you know deep and meaningful for everyone and builds trust People get to voice their experience, but also learn uh, not other people's advice, but their own failures. So you actually get into this, you know, wonderful sort of almost, you know, um, lean startup methodology or failing fast. And everyone else gets to share what, you know, what their successes and failures have been. We don't give advice. Um, there's no should-haves or, or could-haves necessarily, but it is it's a lot of vulnerable sharing. So it becomes a virtual cycle. I'm curious, you know, when when you shared publicly, what were some of the some of the human responses um, that you that you might have received from your own vulnerable sharing? Yeah, I got a lot of responses, and I, and I should add, I, I was a member of EO for many years, and like that forum experience that you described, I think is a really powerful and interesting one. And it's since I left EO. I guess I started my own forum, which is actually a, a business women's kind of founder CEO forum. And so I, I really love that format. And, yeah. you know, like I'd, I'd encourage anyone listening to like explore setting up their own network where you've got peers and you are sharing and, and being vulnerable. Like I've just learned so much from the other business women that I've connected with in, in that setting. But in terms of the response to the failure as you may, it's like it's overwhelmingly positive and it's really touching as well in terms of I've received so many notes and messages on social media and email since putting it all out there. And I think it, it makes you feel incredibly encouraged and supported to 
be vulnerable. Like I don't think I've received any negative feedback uh, or challenging feedback on the act of, of doing that, which, which does, I think, make it easier. Uh, but, I mean, it's funny because I think people are still very resistant to doing this process and making it public. Like one of the programs that we run at Inventium is to help help leaders more effectively lead hybrid teams. So hybrid working, uh, I don't think it's controversial to say this is the way of the future. And in this particular program, one of the weeks is about creating psychological safety. And we suggest the exercise of creating a failure resume within your team and everyone sharing that failure resume. And out of all the tools and strategies that we recommend in this six-week program, I mean, that's just, you know, 5% of the program, I'd say, creating this failure resume, we actually received quite a bit of uh, negative feedback on that process, people really resisting the idea of doing that. And that kind of, that, that surprised me. I mean, it probably says quite a bit about the existing culture within a team, I think, that people are really nervous about doing that. And I probably take sometimes the culture of my own team at Inventium for granted because when I first went through the exercise in early 2020 of sharing my failure resume, everyone on my team, one by one, completely unprompted because I didn't set it as a team exercise, everyone ended up sharing their own failure resume. And now the process has been with, uh, like we've had one new person start recently in the last few weeks at Inventium and she shared her failure resume on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, which reached a lot of people uh, inspired by what I did. So it's been a really positive response. Cool. Any particular sharings or, uh, or things you'd like to share with, with our audience today or should it be all in the show notes when people check out your LinkedIn profile? <laughs> oh, look, they, they can check it out in the show notes. I think for me, uh, I'm, I think when, when I was going through the process, I deliberately made it a work and a non-work activity. Uh, I, I find it easier to share work failures because that's just something that I've been doing for a while. You know, I've spent the better part of the last two decades specializing in innovation. And we talk so much about the importance of failures and creating a fail, safe to fail culture. And I feel very comfortable talking about work failures to anyone that will listen. But I think it's harder when you talk about personal failures and what you've learned there and also where those two worlds collide like something I wrote about in my failure resume recently is just reflecting uh, back in 2013 um, I'd had a miscarriage and that's something that I talk about very openly now but I didn't talk about with my work team at the time because you know there was still a lot of stigma attached to it and uh, you know for all sorts of reasons but that was a, I think that's a really hard process uh, for any expecting parent to go through a miscarriage, but typically it happens while the pregnancy is still a secret. But you're mourning for this thing and really deeply mourning um, for this life that will will never exist. But, you know, you can't really take leave or share that experience with other people. Um, and I just remember what a hard time that was for me. And, you know, like if, if that happened now, I mean, I'm done having children now. But uh, yeah, but I'd like to think if anyone on my team experienced that, that because of how I spoke about that and, you know, I've spoken about it with my team quite a few times, that they, that they would feel comfortable expressing that and take the leave and the time off that they needed mm. to process that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, 
I mean, it's a profound example and, 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 and I mean, yeah, times are slowly shifting in that particular regard as well. I mean, we, my wife and I had uh, miscarriage with, with twins last year um, and, um, you know, it happened in, you know, May and it was a very prolonged sort of experience and um, didn't happen naturally and my wife had to go in for, for, for DNC and, you know, operations and, and, and all of that, and, you know, very traumatic experience for us and you know you, you you know not only you know as as, as women do you suffer you know but both the the, the the mental aspects of of what's involved and, and the sense of loss but you also go through you know the, the biological the physical process of it and i remember at the time you know it sort of also required a fair bit of me i was going through my own sense of loss but also having to support um of course nicole throughout it and, sh- and sharing this experience with with a business partner, I thought it was um, vulnerably, and um, and I knew that this person had been through something similar a, a fair while back, and um, I had a delay on something that I um, had sort of you know alluded I was going to get done in terms of some video marketing and stuff like that, and this person was not understanding whatsoever and thought I was just using this experience as an excuse for the fact that my productivity uh, wasn't quite as high uh, during that particular period in time. And I thought, here, here I am being, you know, I'm being vulnerable, I'm very, very honest as to what we're, what we're going through. And, um, and um, but generationally, this, this person just had, you know, even though they had been through a similar experience uh, 10, 15 years earlier, uh, there wasn't that sort of acceptance. But I think Maybe today, you know, hopefully we're starting to, um, you know, also generationally be be more open about this kind of thing. Um, but it, it reminds me of like what what's the culture that you want to? And and I should say that you know I no longer work with this person because I just found that the you know the values alignment was so so distraught um, and so differentiated, and this really shone a light on it. Um, but in terms of values alignment, you know, productivity, you know the hybrid nature of work do you, do you see that in an era of sort of the great resignation etc that people are more willing to sort of back what their values are and operate in a in a setting of trust and vulnerability oh, i think it varies so much from from team to team even within the same organization and again like i think of the teams that we work with an Inventium and I think of the Inventium team as well. And I just, I think it's, it, it, it really is vastly different. And like I do, you know, I, I think so much about the employee experience and, and part of me, like when I started Inventium, you know, I, I had a goal to, to create a great innovation consultancy and we've, you know, since shifted into being bit more broader and a behavioral science consultancy but as well as doing great work and creating great ip that's based on the latest scientific research my second goal was to create an amazing place for people to work and the best place that they'd ever worked in their life no less and i had that as a goal because i i studied organizational psychology and that's what i ended up specializing in in terms of my doctorate and you know, you learn so much around what does what does a great workplace look like, and then you get into the real world, and you realise that most workplaces are pretty bloody ordinary. And 
there are a lot of leaders out there that really lack compassion or compassion or they prioritize profit over purpose or profit over people and i think that's really sad and for me you know when i think about the impact that i can have as a, a, a leader in the space of work and the future of work you know i think obviously there's a lot of great work that that my company can do with our clients but i think there's a lot of great work that i can do with the people that are closest which is my team and you know it's why we're always exploring you know new ways of working and um and i feel i feel like i've deviated so much from the original question and just i'm like what was the actual question but it's something that i'm very passionate about in terms of it is not good enough for an adult who is working to feel really crap on a Sunday night and anxious that the next day is Monday and they have to just somehow get through the next five days. Like that is not good enough. And I think that anyone that feels that way, that has that Sunday night dread. And I remember the last time I was employed, that was the thing that triggered me to hand in my resignation. I gave three months notice. I had no idea what I would do, but life is too short to feel that Sunday night dread. And I knew I needed to do something completely different. At the time I you know, had no ambition to start my own consultancy. I only did that because I couldn't find anywhere I wanted to work. But I just think it's not good enough for us to accept workplaces as places that we tolerate as opposed to thrive in. Yeah. I mean, we interviewed Raj Sisodia, the author of Conscious Capitalism and, and Firms of Endearment, and I'm sure you've probably come across his work at some stage or another. And he, he always refers to the fact that, you know, we have restaurants called Thank God It's Friday and I think mm. he says something something like 40% of heart attacks happen in the United States at like 5 a.m. or 5.30 a.m. on a Monday morning as people go back to work. So uh, that's a very early American uh, working day, but um, nonetheless. Mm. Are, you, are you seeing some, we, we talked a little bit, I kind of alluded to this sense of, you know, the great resignation and, and, and of course, digitization has enabled people to work from, from anywhere and sort of d democratized opportunity is breaking down, you know, the old tyranny of distance, et cetera. Are you, are you seeing from an organizational or, you know, just a, a psychological perspective that people have been going through this sort of reflective moment of, of, of realigning and wanting to work uh, and, and contribute in a way that's, you know, aligned to, you know, sustainability or wanting to work for, I know you guys are a B Corp, for example, you know, is, is, is that a trend or, and are people backing themselves now? I think it's been a trend for many years, but I think when you go through a crisis, like a crisis makes you stop and reflect and think about, Am I living the life that I want to live? And because of, you know, particularly in Melbourne where I'm from, where I think we spent 265 days locked down, that's a lot of time to reflect on your life and what you want and what you're getting from your place of work. And, you know, it's I, I was listening to a podcast the other day and they sort of likened, you know, the, the idea of like the great resignation and quitting your job and, you know, like doing a 180 on your career. It's like when you end a relationship and you go to the hairdresser and you're like, just give me something completely different. And it's not necessarily the best time to make a big decision when your psychological resources are quite drained. And I think everybody's psychological resources are quite drained right now. So, 
not the best time to make a decision, but I, I certainly understand and can empathize with the psychology behind it because we're exhausted. And if we're unhappy, the grass often looks greener. But I guess I would encourage people to, you know, if they're, if they're feeling like resigning or leaving a job, I mean, sometimes that decision's clear. Sometimes it's really clear. But where it's not clear, I think slow down your decision-making process and kind of sit with it for a bit longer. Like you don't have to rush into anything. And it is a really big decision to leave a job if the decision's not clear. And often, you know, like I also hear, uh, and I'm just trying to remember if this is from um, the head of LinkedIn, uh, possibly, um, about the great reshuffling as opposed to the great resignation where maybe there are actually new opportunities to explore within the organisation that you work in right now um, that is often underestimated by a lot of mm. people, how many opportunities there might be just on your front doorstep. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember hearing um, at a conference in, in North Carolina a number of years ago um, the um, – CEO of former CEO of uh, of Apple, who was lord lord to Apple by uh, Steve Jobs to become uh, the CEO, uh, who basically said, you know, John, are you going to stay at PepsiCo selling sugared water to the rest of the world for the rest of your career, or do you want to come and join me at Apple and change the world? <laughs> and you know, this was back in the you know nineteen eighties or early nineteen nineties, I believe, and. Um, but, you know, I, th I think that sense, um, whether, you know, us as entrepreneurs, you, you know, you want to make a sort of a, a dent in the universe or uh, even, even more, you know, profoundly sometimes. Um, I know you guys scale your ideas through the organizations you work with, but what I'm also hearing is very, very important, um, you know, as a, as a small business, as a fast growing business to also just create that, that cultural alignment and making people feel like they can make a dent in their in their worlds, um, however small or big their ambitions might be. Definitely. Yeah, I just think it's so important. And, you know, I would encourage people to check out B Corp or B Corporation. Uh, if you Google that, you'll find out more. It's, it's like a certification process uh, to, to show that as a business you do put purpose over profit. And it is, it is really hard to become B Corp certified. It's not like you just fill in a little survey and, you know, bingo, it's done. Like it is, I remember when we first did it about six years ago, it was like a full-time job for about a month actually going through their certification process and reflecting on some of the decisions that you make as a business owner around, um, you know, the social and environmental impact that you have and going, why do we do things that way? We should change that. And uh, it, it's such... It's just such a great process to go through, you know, even regardless of whether you get the certification at the end. Um, but it's very powerful. And I, like even just this morning I was talking to uh, Inventium CEO, Mish, and, you know, we're, like we, we were talking about just, you know, what, what our focus should be philanthropically and socially and environmentally. And, you know, we're just kind of saying like, what, why aren't we um, – completely carbon neutral as a business. Like that just seems like a no brainer now, particularly as a small business where that's not an overly challenging thing to be. So we just agreed. It's just like, well, let's just make that happen. Yeah. You know, why wouldn't you? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the B Corp movement is is gathering steam in a in a really massive way. We're undergoing that that very process at the moment as well. And I think um, you know, as a small business, it's actually fairly easy to to, you know, pick off some pretty pretty low hanging fruit on on that journey. It's still a journey. Um and I think we also have made the realization that well, we actually have been uh, operating pretty, you know, sustainably, uh, even looking back. Um, but of course, we, you know, we learn more about the circular economy and 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 all the rest all of the time as well. So it is a it's a learning process. Um, I mean, th- this kind of brings us to the idea of sustainability. And oftentimes we think of sustainability as just being about green or or the environment. But of course, it's you know. As, as you're aware, it's you know environmental, social, and governance factors, and you've touched a fair bit on social and how we you know how we treat our staff and the you know cultures we create, and of course it also comes down to to governance or in you know John Elkington, who we're about to have on the show, his language of the of the three P's, you know people, planet, and and profit, um, triple bottom line. Um, do you, do you think like when you look at um, people, planet, and profit? How do you see them interplay? You, you know, you work with with the Fin Review and Boss Magazine on you know most innovative companies in Australia awards, for example, and the best places to work. Um, do you see that um, these are no longer just sort of nice to haves, but you know are an essential component to to productivity and and, and performance, innovation output, and I think they are because they're they're so linked to culture. I mean, like that they all feed into purpose, like having a clear reason for being as a company that is having a positive impact in the world above and beyond any financial returns or, you know, financial returns to shareholders, particularly if it's a publicly listed company. And if you're a purpose-led business, that can't help but spill over into the culture. And culture impacts everything. I mean, culture has a huge impact on productivity. It has a huge impact on innovation. Um, and look, you know, with the two competitions that we run with the Australian Financial Review here in Australia, uh, I mean, culture is a key component of the best places to work list and also the most innovative companies list. It's so fundamental, um, you know, and, and I think like unless you've got, uh, you know, a, a thriving healthy, engaged kind of culture and, and a motivated work po- workforce, it's really hard to do good work and have a big impact as an organisation. I'm not quite sure how that would happen if you were lacking those things. That would be challenging. Yeah, because I, I think, you know, I, I heard Alain de Botton once upon a time talk at, um, at TED Global in, in Oxford and he spoke about the fact that, um, you know, we all have this you know, greater sense of anxiety these days, you know, through through the rise of self-help books, for example, the sort of, you know, the locus of responsibility, if if we fail or don't become a success in, in today's, you know, increasingly meritocratic society, as he calls it, you know, the, the locus of responsibility is firmly on us as, as human beings. Um, whereas in the past, you know, no one really criticized you if you didn't make a sort of socioeconomic journey through 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 life, you know, it was sort of almost liberating, he said, psychologically and philosophically, because you knew you could never become uh, as famous as the queen. You could never really marry into the royal family because, 
you know, if you weren't already a royal, even if it was a different royal house in Europe, for example. And now we have so much opportunity, you know, there's so much sense of digital democratization, etc. But I'm just curious if you have a sense now that we're at a similar point in time where, you know, my parents never really thought about purpose in their work. I mean, my mum, you know, took over the uh, family business because that was kind of an expectation. Um, she didn't really focus in on really kind of, you know, putting her slant on on that little menswear store in, in Stockholm, Sweden, for example, but it was just a done thing, right? And, you know, my dad saw the military as an opportunity to get him out of a, a small town in, in northern Sweden um, and, you know, to create a new life for himself. But today, you know, courtesy of Simon Sinek and everyone who talks about purpose, and I think it's, it's a worthwhile movement, um, you know, can it also come with a sense of sort of purpose anxiety for either entrepreneurs or organizations or, or, or individuals who kind of go, ah, oh, haven't found it yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> am I bad human? Um, what, what, what would be your response to that? And maybe how, how, how does one tap into that purpose? Purpose anxiety. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Cause like while you were talking, I was reflecting on my, parents. And, and I think my mum particularly is very purpose-driven. She's a clinical psychologist and she, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the change that she's made to so many people's lives and she does a lot of teaching as well in her profession, which she places a lot of value on because it's her way of giving back as she's getting closer to retirement. So I do wonder how that you know, that probably impacted me quite a great deal to just go, well, of, of course you have purpose in your work. That seems crazy not to. But in terms of purpose anxiety and trying to find it, gosh, I'm I mean, not I, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example, right? I mean, so my, my, my wife, Nicole, she's the founder and designer and of Ephemera, which is a uh, swimwear brand for women's uh, swim and resort wear. And, you know, she, she comes from an entrepreneurial family where, you know, particularly, um, well, actually both sides of the family, um, you know, mother and father both encouraged Nicole to tap into her creativity. You know, they could see that she was quite, you know, aesthetic from, from a young age and, you know, they didn't do a flawless job. Um, you know, they didn't encourage her to go and study design in, in, in London when she was just out of uni or just out of school and that's what she really wanted to do. So the, it wasn't a perfect journey of, of sort of purpose-driven or, you know, passion-driven um, work encouragement from the beginning, but there was always a sense that they were quite tuned into who she was and what her, her purpose was um, and encouragement for that. But I know... You know, she always shares a story with me that she has plenty of friends who, you know, grew up in family businesses, for example, where the, the, the parents, in fact, encourage their kids to just play it safe and, you know, don't go through the rigmarole of, of being in a, you know, an entrepreneur or, you know, um, just go and work in accounting, for example, because that's a safe thing to do. And I feel like even when I was at law school, you know, that was the advice that a lot of people got that, you know, if you study law, you'll do all right, you know, even if it wasn't something that we felt was super purposeful, for example, you know, out of, you know, my, my colleagues at law school, there were many people who said that they wanted to go into doing pro bono or international law work or humanitarian law who ended up, you know, 
being corporate lawyers at the end of the day, um, which was maybe a little bit more practical, but maybe a little bit less purposeful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I was just, while you were talking, I was reminded of uh, a friend of mine who I went for a walk with about a week ago, and she works for a very big Australian corporate. Uh, and she said to me, and she's currently taking like some really well-earned leave at the moment, like quite a lot of it because it's it's been a full-on 18 months through the pandemic. Um, and she's like, do you, like is it normal to wake up in the morning at the start of a work day and just think to yourself, I can't wait till this day is over? And I just thought, like I can't, re- I can't remember the last time I mean, I can't even remember having that thought. I'm sure I must have because I have had some awful jobs and bosses in the past, but it just felt like such a foreign idea to wake up and wish the day away, to wish the work day away. Uh, yeah, and I was really struck by that. I feel like sometimes I'm just, I'm just in my own little happy work bubble, which is not particularly useful for having empathy for, uh, you know, a a lot of my clients that um, I'm sure could relate to this friend's experience of her work. But again, I just come back to, gosh, like life is too short to be feeling that way about work. Like Mm. that's crazy. And sometimes purpose will fix that. Like if you can actually find purpose in what you do, but other times you know, other times it it does require a shift. It does require a a job change or an organization change as as we were talking about before. Yeah. I mean, when when I think about the future and the future of work and what people are selecting to make a contribution towards, I mean, you mentioned sort of 10 10 hours a, a day in terms of even hybrid work and, you know, juggling everything that comes with it, lockdowns and, and all the rest. And then you think about, you know, the potential negative externalities of what people are contributing to during those uh, 10 hours a day. And, you know, we've just seen and we're still in the midst of COP26 where the world leaders are are supposedly meeting now to set a new course towards 2050. Um, And I'm not asking you necessarily as a sustainability expert here, but what's your sense? Is that, you know, if we're trying to get people to become more productive, more creative, more innovative. I know you've spoken before about, you know, the sort of convergence of, you know, a challenge skills and resources to help us help make us more creative or innovative. What do you see? Uh, Is 2050 too far into the future in terms of mobilizing humanity's creativity and innovation? Is 2030, you know, a a better target just to get people off their backsides and actually doing something? What, What are you thinking from a sort of change narrative perspective to mobilize action. Yeah. And and to be honest, look, I, um, you know, I definitely do not profess to be an expert in sustainability or knowing how realistic or not the 2050 target is. And also just, is that soon enough? Uh, I guess is the question in my mind, but from, from a psychological perspective, we know that to, to motivate people and to drive innovation, people need big challenges, but challenges where they've got the skills and resources to rise to that challenge. And certainly innovation is lacking if a challenge is not big enough. Like if people feel like they can, yeah, you know, like I I can do that fairly easily in a fairly straightforward way. That's 
that's not going to really challenge me. That's not a great recipe for driving innovative thinking. So from a theoretical basis, uh, you know, I, I, I think bigger challenges are generally more motivating and produce more innovative efforts. Um, to, you know. I mean, in that context, we've just seen a, you know, even though it's slightly uncoordinated, but some, t- some type of global response towards this little, you know, this little virus that's wreaked havoc on lives and livelihoods. Do you think we learnt anything in terms of handling big existential threats in that, in terms of either company or organisation or even global corporate uh, cooperation in terms of fighting, you know, the big, you know, climate science or climate change uh, yeah. monster? Look, I think from from the perspective that I think about most, which is about the employee experience and how that has changed the world of work, I think that it has really shown a lot of managers, well, firstly, that they can trust their team to actually do work if they are not in plain sight, which I think is an excellent lesson for managers to be taught. And I think it also hopefully gives leaders optimism that you can actually enact big substantial change quite quickly and have it actually be a success in a lot of instances. So for me, I think those two things are pretty cool outcomes. I mean, you know, there's obviously been many negative outcomes, but they're two that stand out as being really good. And then what that then comes with generally is a focus on output over hours, which is a concept that's been talked about ad nauseum, um, you know, particularly around productivity and that you should value people's output rather than the hours that they work. But it certainly has moved us, moved many leaders to perhaps going, oh, yeah, that does make sense. You know, I shouldn't judge someone's like performance or commitment to the organisation if they send me an email at seven o'clock at night or on the weekend. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think this is sort of you know starting to be a little bit in 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 the wheelhouse of the likes of you know yourself and 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 Cal Newport etc. Deep work um, in, in this you know day and age where people have been juggling that transition to to working from home. You know, oftentimes you know maybe even two parents trying to do some homeschooling around the you know while also jumping on Teams calls etc. around the kitchen table. There doesn't seem to be a lot of scope for that sort of deep reflective work, yet we've probably had time outside of work hours to th- think about what's important and, and make contributions in that space. What, what do you think now as we sort of enter the economic recovery phase of all of this? You know, will people redesign their homes? You know, will they be, uh, you know, will people be adding another room, converting the garage into you know, lean startup micro hubs that serve the greater organization. What do you see in terms of how people will design and set themselves up so they can actually have some time to, to, to think deeply and, and um, not, just, not just be, you know, super process oriented and, and turning up for the meetings, but actually, you know, coming up with something meaningful? I think in terms of people doing more deep work, it requires so much more change than like changing your office setup, for example, or changing your physical environment. It's so much more around just how you are training your brain to work and a huge amount of work that we do at Inventium with our clients is 
I would say almost retraining people how to do deep focused work because I feel that it is a skill that people had particularly before the age of digital distraction uh you know for those that have been in the the workplace before things were just so dominated by you know like instant messenger and teams chat or google chat or whatever people are using slack uh so I feel like our, our brains do need retraining because right now they're trained to prioritize shallow work um to use the language of cal newport where we prioritize non-cognitively demanding tasks like email and um you know messenger or or slack um interruptions on our phone because these are these are more addictive uh sort of um like work behaviors as well like email is a really addictive mechanism where we never know when that next reward, so to speak, is coming from uh, in, t in terms of like a good news email. So we get really addicted to checking our email multiple times a day, even though we know that that's not the most productive use of our time. So it really is about rewiring our brains and creating new habits, which is certainly what we like a, a lot of the work that we do with our clients at Inventium, because that's what needs to be done. Like, you know, moving out of the city and creating a great home office environment that's great but you've still got a phone and you've still got email and you've still got you know a bunch of digital distractions that are taking you away from deep focused work so we're nearly into the the, the final quarter here it's been a, it's been a great innings uh today amantha um i'm curious to see you know what what advice or what are some practical tips that we can take away to maybe boost the digital hygiene and ensure we don't get distracted by digital distractions and actually contribute meaningfully and, and, and humanely to a more sustainable and hopefully more profitable future as well. Sure. I mean, there's so much I could talk about. So let, let me name like two or three things and happy to, you know, dig deeper or go broader. Uh, so the first thing I think is really important is that people actually become aware of the difference between deep work and shallow work. Uh, obviously deep work by um, Cal Newport, who's a, uh, actually a computer science professor at Georgetown in America. Um, he, uh, he wrote the book Deep Work, I think back in 2017. And basically this is a concept for knowledge workers. So people that are paid for the value of the thinking that they bring to their organization, two types of work that we can engage in. Deep work, which requires focus, concentration. It's the hard stuff. Um, it requires a lack of interruption. Whereas shallow work is what I talked about before, less cognitively demanding work. And I think even just seeing that distinction in your day-to-day -day work and the day-to-day -day tasks that you, that you do in any given work day is incredibly powerful for most people. You know, certainly we, we have a program called our Workday Reinvention Program, and that's one of the first things that we educate people on. And, you know, I've kind of lived with this notion and, and worked in this way like for four years now. Um, but it's, it's a revelation for people that don't actually think about the different types of modes, the two modes that you can be in as a knowledge worker and coming to the realization that, hang on, my work and application software applications are designed in a way that kind of gets me prioritizing shallow work, but actually the value that I bring to my job is in deep work. So we've kind mm. of got to flip things. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is know your chronotype. Um, so chronotype refers to uh, a whole lot of research done by psychologists around circadian rhythms. And basically when is your peak, when are your peak energy levels over a 24 hour period? 
broadly speaking, there are three types of chronotypes. There's larks who are stereotypical morning people. They do their best thinking in the morning. There are owls that are about um, 20% of the population. They do their best thinking at night. Um, and then there are middle birds who operate on the schedule of a lark, but just delayed by an hour or two. So they do their best thinking work, you know, between about nine and 12 in the morning. Um, and I will add, um, and I can give you a link to, to a, a scientifically validated chronotype assessment to pop in the show notes for people that want to actually self-assess what their chronotype is. But I think this is such an important concept for people to understand their chronotype and proactively design their day so that they're doing their deep, hardest, you know, work that requires intense focus in line with their chronotype. So match your hardest work to your brain's energy levels. So for me, I am lack-ish. Uh, I sort of, you know, wake naturally at about 6 a.m. without an alarm. And um, I've got my daughter with me half the time, which obviously, um, you know, puts a very important constraint on my schedule. Uh, but when I don't have my daughter, you know, I, I would very happily sort of, you know, start work at about 7 a.m. and I do my best work between about 7 to 10 a.m. in the morning. And, you know, whereas if I was working in a traditional organisation that valued the nine to five hours, that's not going to get the best out of me. And likewise, if my team has organised, say, its daily stand-up meeting at nine o'clock in the morning, which is a really normal thing to do, that's a stupid thing to do if your team are mostly larks or middle birds, which, you know, 80% of people are according to population averages. That's stupid. Stand-up meetings and daily update meetings, that's shallow work. That doesn't require heavy lifting in terms of brain power. So have those meetings at lunchtime when most of us have brains that are not firing. Mm -hmm. So there, there are a couple of things. There's a bunch of tactical things I could talk about in terms of eliminating digital distractions, but I will pause to see where do you want to take this? Well, I'll see where we can take things because I know you have a digital distraction, which is a Microsoft meeting uh, coming up in in in, in just a few in just a few few minutes. So, I guess you know to kind of try and s summarize some of these things because I, I think you know there's so much gold you you've shared with us and and some things I'll, I'll take away and challenge myself on as well. I'm, I'm juggling um, a two week old and, and a four year old at home, and the four year old um, just got sick last night, so he's staying oh. home from school. So some you know it can like the reality is of, I guess, life sometimes challenges this, right? But I'm pretty certain that, you know, my best work is also early on in the morning. And so I try and not do any, you know, financial analysis or, you know, uh, any uh, zero keeping my finger on the pulse at that type, time of the day. And it's sort of more an evening activity for me where I have a little bit of firepower left, but it's fairly menial work for, for me from my perspective. So um, I think that that's a really powerful for lesson in terms of you know tuning into yourself, but also of course um, your your team um, as well. Um, I'm just thinking in terms of in terms of final nuggets. I mean, I'm, I'm mesmerized by your journey through through you know consumer psychology, organizational psychology. Uh, I know you've been firmly embedded into the wheelhouses of creativity and uh, also innovation, but now you're very much focused on this you know productivity and the future of work. Uh, place. I'm just thinking, you know, is maybe as a final comment or reflection, is is the future of hybrid work? Is it is it a better workplace than what we saw pre-pandemic? I think a workplace that offers more flexibility is always going to be a better workplace. Like when when people feel like they've got autonomy and freedom over how they work, where they work, what hours they work, what time they're doing work, 
it leads to happier, more motivated people. And that's always going to be a good thing. So hybrid, yes, that's great, but it's only great if it gives people more flexibility and control. So where hybrid is slightly problematic is where it's mandated how you work in that hybrid way. So flexibility is, and autonomy over the way you work is really the thing that underpins what makes that very powerful. Mm. And maybe just just finally then, you know, as as we sort of start re-emerging back into the analog world again, do you think that, you know, the ideas of creativity and innovation and those types of processes are something that we're going to keep having in the in the sort of virtual world of collaboration? Or do you think that, you know, they are the types of activities that we'll prioritize doing in the analog face-to-face world? And if so, you know, What's the what are what are the benefits and and disadvantages maybe of both the virtual and the analog from a from a creativity and innovation output perspective? Yeah, look, I think that by and large, a lot of leaders don't make decisions based on what scientific research suggests is most effective. Obviously, our lovely clients at Inventium do, but a lot of leaders out there don't. And I remember I had um, I mentioned I've had Adam Grant on the How I Work podcast a couple of times. And when I had him on earlier this year, I asked him, like, is there any research that suggests that virtual collaboration or face-to-face collaboration is better for creativity and innovation? And the jury's out. Like, there's nothing conclusive, even though a lot of leaders jump to the conclusion that, oh, well, for innovation to happen, we need face-to-face collaboration around, you know, a whiteboard in a real office. But Actually, no, the jury is very much out. There is nothing to suggest that we do. So I would like to think that more leaders trust research rather than their gut when making decisions around that that also can have a big impact on, um, you know, employee happiness and autonomy and flexibility. Yeah, and and nothing like a burning platform like a a pandemic to actually, you know, get our creative uh, juices flowing again as well, Ryan. Definitely. Dr. Amantha Imba from uh, Inventium, thank you so much for for being on uh, the show and doing some really uh, deep work with us on um, how we can all design a better and more sustainable workplace for the future where people are happy uh, to go to work and uh, don't necessarily just look forward to, thank God it's Friday. Thank you very much for hanging out with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Amantha, for shining a light on how we can all participate in the second renaissance in the economic recovery phase of the pandemic. Next, we speak with Lisa McLean from New South Wales Circular. Lisa helps us define the circular economy and its innovation capacity, why circularity's time has come in a massive way, the ticking climate clock, and what we can do individually and systemically to shift from a linear economy to a circular one. For more information about the second renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the second renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.